you know, I'll never forget like realizing that my show called Women was scheduled on the day of the Women's March in New oh, York really? City. Oh, wow. So what a disaster. <laughs> you, you've really got the timing. Yeah. <laughs> for coming on the show. Welcome to the Art Grime Podcast. We are all three of us big fans of your work here. And uh, I I was poking around on the internet a little before you came reading some stories and uh, Jeffrey Deitch called you the most contemporary figure painter. Uh-huh. What, uh, <laughs> how do you feel about that? <laughs> how do you feel about that? <laughs> well, it's very flattering, but Jeffrey tends to be um, a little bit let's just say strong in his praise of me, which I appreciate, but I think Jeffrey's a little bit, maybe overstates it sometimes. I was telling Dina, I was saying, I kind of, I kind of agree with it. Like there is something very, in my definition, contemporary about the way you handle the figure. What, what would be your definition of contemporary in that way? I I guess that's a little bit of a hard question to answer. Um, you know, I only think about that very in very general terms. Like I, th- I, I'm always aware that for me, it's important to make my work somehow engage with the contemporary world. But there's okay. no recipe for that. Okay. So why that happens exactly, I'm not sure I can put my finger on. I. I my earliest interest in art were people like, well, my first favorite artist was weirdly enough Copley because there's, because mm. I grew up outside of Boston and there's a great collection of Copleys at the Museum of Fine Arts uh-huh. and not a very good collection of anybody else. So that was sort of my introduction to seeing um, art in person. But and- you, you were going to the museums as a kid? I was going to the museum as, museums as a teenager. Okay. So which okay. which part of Boston did you grow up in? I grew up in a suburb called Situate. I, I know Situate. I, yeah. Yeah, so I grew up in Brookline. I, uh-huh. I used to go to that. I used to skip school. to, And, you know, you got to do something while you're skipping school. So I would um, sneak into the – I think under 16, you could go to the Museum of Fine Arts for free. For free. Uh-huh. Um, I know that place so well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you have the same opinion that I do, but um, I'm not – I don't love it. There's, I mean, it was – Don't love Boston? I, no, I don't love Boston. But I don't love the Museum of Fine Arts. Uh, you know, you know. I, I think for me, it was just my kind of my first introduction to art. There was this Zurbaran painting there of a monk. I, I mean, it was basically like any other Zurbaran. Uh-huh. It was a monk with his cowl down, and like I remember, monks, right? Yeah, like, uh, and and I remember thinking like I like I I like I want. If I like, like, I want to paint like this person. I couldn't paint anything at all. Huh. Like, I, I couldn't hold a brush. Uh, but I was like, if I make a painting, I want it to be this one. And yeah, that's a beautiful painting. And then they do it. They actually do have some, you know, there's a, a painting there. I don't even remember the name of the artist, an obscure Italian painter. They do have a few, but I'm, I'm just not a big fan of most of the work. So it- Copley was really, I mean, I, yeah. I still like Copley. I still like Copley's American work. Is that, is that, is that one with the shark? Uh- uh, that's not my favorite. <laughs> it's not my favorite, but like as a as an early teenager, that that uh, one was one of the most cool. striking ones. Yeah, that is cool. <laughs> yeah. I like um, how wrong he got the shark. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because there is sort of a uncanniness to your work. Do you do you try to find those little moments of humor, like you're cueing into the shark there? No, I mean I, I realize that. There's something about my work. I mean, that's a nice way to put it, uncanny. 
Um, and, you know, I always hope that that's true, depending on how you define that. But um, my work, you know, I, I realized 15 years ago or so, 20 years ago, that my work, there's something artificial about my work. And actually, uh-huh. I tried for a long time to eliminate that. You know, I'd like change techniques. I tried approaching it differently. What, what Explain the artificialness, though, in terms of the rendering or the scenes or what are you? Well, you know, well, I guess both. But I remember when I was in, in graduate school at UCLA, I got to a point in my work where I, I had been doing work that was inspired by artists like Francis Bacon. Okay. Um, I mean, it didn't doesn't look like Francis Bacon, but I was looking at that kind of work. So there were these kind of, let's say, extreme psychological scenes. Uh-huh. And... When I got to UCLA, I realized that that was just an, an entirely inherited way of working. Like that had not no relevance to me. And, you know, I was copying a sort of European psychological um, approach to painting. Okay. Yeah, 20th century psychological approach to painting. And so I decided that I had to move away from that. So I thought I would do some paintings that I, where all I did was copy so I did this portrait of a, a friend of mine, two friends of mine who were a couple. And then I did this series of self-portraits. And I remember showing them at a crit. And I was saying to in the crit that I just considered them to be like absolute realism, like just really carefully trying to observe everything hmm. in the mirror. And I remember one of the students saying, but they look like cartoons. Okay. And I realized that's true. Huh. I didn't want that to happen, but there was a weird, I mean, I, I don't think it's true. They look like cartoons, but they didn't really look real. You know, there was uh-huh. something strangely artificial about them. So, okay. so I, feel, I feel like your work, I mean, it's this kind of fine line, but we, on one hand, things are kind of realistically rendered. On the other hand, like both me and Marshall kind of came up with the same word on uncanny when, when we were talking about it. Uh, did, I mean, you know about the uncanny valley because, uh, it must have been brought up like in relation to your work, right? Like it's, it's, it's yeah. like, um, yeah, yeah. Like I feel like, like there's an uncanny valley-ness to, to all, like all of, all of your paintings where on one hand they're real, but on the other hand they're like, they're too weird. They're not cartoony, but they're not entirely like, you know, like they're, they're, they're beautifully observed. Well, um, I, I mean, I had to accept that about my paintings at a certain point, but, <laughs> but I, but at the same time, I, if I step outside of myself and my own insecurities about my work, I don't mind that about the work because actually most of the work I love does exactly that. Like my favorite uh-huh. painter by far is Ang. And that's oh my certainly God, and he's true. So, he's so weird. So, yeah, <laughs> certainly true of Ang. Yeah. yeah, there's a totally bizarre artificial perversity in his work. It, particularly in women he paints it feels they look so airbrushed and smoothed out almost yeah. more like someone you'd see you know how people look on money you know they have that yeah kinda... but even even the people on money are a little bit more like yeah. real people yeah things. totally um, and it's also i mean i feel like if you were just kind of doing observational paintings then you'd probably have like an atelier type of nude and your work is so far from that yeah no i no it is for sure and and kind of like when I guess when you know you're part of the contemporary art dialogue, it looks contemporary because maybe there is something strange about the kind of 21st century. The, well, um, yeah. Like like we're like we're you know like like we're like we're doing more than just painting nudes 
to, you know, kind of make sure their flesh tones are right. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I do remember at UCLA, one of my most important teachers was Larry Pittman. And I, I mean, he was actually a really smart, really smart critic of painting. And I remember him saying that, you know, it's perfectly legitimate to make classically rendered figurative work. And that was actually, I actually didn't hear that much in New York, hmm. because New York... I didn't hear that much in New York unless I was talking to someone who was a very conservative artist. Uh-huh. But in California, I heard that much more frequently from artists who are in no way considered conservative. Huh. And I think it's because California is removed enough from like the New York European tradition so that they don't care about it. You know what I mean? It doesn't like bother them. Like it's not hovering over them. Oh, like their tradition is like Ed Ruscha and John Baldessari. And there is, I mean, at least then, that's a long time ago now, 25 years, but I felt like there was a little bit more of an openness in California, like an openness of possibilities. So most of my teachers there, certainly Larry Pittman, just thought that was totally legitimate to do what I was doing. But I do remember him saying over and over again, but you have to make it somehow be work that's engaging with the late 20th century. Like he used to always say that. And not, you know, you shouldn't be just trying to make paintings like they used to be when everyone could paint hands. Uh-huh. And yeah, so there was yeah. just that general, you know, that sort of like general imperative. And that's always been on my mind. But, you know, I think it's hard to then translate into a, that into a recipe. Uh-huh. I mean? So it's just something I always try to be aware of. I, th- I think you've done that really successfully uh, in terms of entering in the the contemporary dialogue with figure paintings, it's not an easy task to do, you know? What have been some of the obstacles you face being... I mean, we all face some being figure painters in this, the current climate and all this stuff. It's uh, it's seen archaic on one end. It's On the other end, it's seen anti-political, you know? There's a lot yeah. of different... So, so Marshall, by the way, was actually just telling me that he's um, kind of in the current climate of like Me Too political correctness. He's no longer going to paint nude women. He is going uh. to paint nude men <laughs> uh, just because it's easier not to meddle with it. And I was like, how did we, you know, like, why are we letting someone, some a- angry academics shut us up? <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It's really incredible how strong that is. I, I was interviewed for a um, New York magazine article. That was titled, I mean, it came out only a few months ago, but it was titled something like, Can Men Still Paint Nude Women? Or something like uh, that. that um, and did you read that article? Um, I did. That is, so, like, I mean, what a what an obnoxious. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know. Uh, I, I feel like that, that person that came up with that title should have just been punched in the face. But then Marshall was telling me that that's like, a, like that is a legitimate conversation that's a his conversation students are I having right at. now. Uh-huh. Um, and, and you're teaching figure- Even at the academy? A bit, sure. I mean, I, I don't. It's not like top-down conversations, but they're happening, and you're like, "Well, we're we are teaching people in life drawing. That's new drawing classes. It's like, what? A, 
it, fe- it feels almost irresponsible to have these classes, you know. It I does. think it's I think it's irresponsible, not just irresponsible, but I think it's kind of oppressive to have these conversations because, uh, like, we're I mean, a bunch of people are are going to be like Marshall, um, and just be like, oh, and you know, some of the people interviewed for that article were saying, uh, you know, I, I think I'm just not going to paint representationally anymore at all. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to abstract, and like, like I feel like we all do better as painters when. when we're not fighting who we are like you might you know like like your sensibility is that of like Dean the bizarre romantic. <laughs> I, I i am i am <laughs> but you're someone's got to be right maybe it's a abstract theory i mean the abstract painter is a conspiracy against you know it's a shutting down theory. all the representation <laughs> of painters but um, but, yeah, but, but totally. look yeah, i mean you were just saying that you're cut you know like your sensibility is that of the bizarre and that of the uncanny and you're you're not going to fight that because that's how you make your best work and i feel like we're going to miss out i mean like yes we'll live in a more politically correct society but i'm not sure that the real problems between men women gender are really going to be resolved by not men not right. painting women yeah, exactly. and, and what what, what will happen is that we're going yeah. to miss out on a bunch of like genuine paintings because people are afraid to make them and because they're like well i i'm just gonna not paint figures anymore not paint women anymore like we'll miss out on really good art yeah i think that art always suffers when um morality comes into play you know kind of like moral imperative determines what can or can't be painted or made you know made art about in whatever form it may be i mean because some of the best artists and writers and i don't know musicians weren't very pleasant people and <laughs> i i don't know like if celine was you know like <laughs> well they're not unpleasant it's just that they people know every aspect of their life like no one's life holds up to scrutiny under a microscope. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know. So Celine, who was probably racist, sexist, sexist anti-Semitic, I, I, all sorts of other so, things. But he was so an amazing everybody in these buildings. Yeah. <laughs> but he was an amazing writer, and I feel like if he had to keep his, you know, his opinions to himself, maybe he wouldn't have been, or maybe he wouldn't have been a writer. Actually, maybe you're, he just. You're assuming that people know who Celine is, Dina. Uh, yes, because I'm assuming that the listeners of our podcast are really intelligent. Um, and, they are. <laughs> obviously, and they, and they read all the obscure books that we do. But Kurt, I do want to get some of your opinions on the, being a figure painter in modernity. Like, what does that look like for you personally? So- I mean, like, whether people think figure painting is relevant or not relevant – I don't care about that anymore at all. Okay. I mean, I think that that kind of idea, I mean, that, that of course follows the idea that art, art unfolds along a trajectory, you know, towards some ultimate end. And we all know that's not true anymore. And, um, you know, I don't believe in the idea of obsolescence. So that, you know, figure painting, its relevance, its irrelevance, I, it doesn't bother me at all anymore. Hmm. So, but, so, but, so speaking of history and painting, how, what made you a painter? Like before we started, you know, recording, we we're just talking about how, you know, whoever here has kids, we don't really want our kids to become painters, yeah. or at least we say that. How did, how did you wind up one? I was just, I, I always, you know, I was one of those kids who was always thought of as the best drawer in the class. And, um, I always loved drawing. And my mother was an artist, so she, there was never 
there was always total encouragement. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, unlike us, right? My mother totally encouraged <laughs> us. I thought well, that was a great idea. Your kids would um, be like, my dad's yeah. nice, but he didn't want me to do it. <laughs> um, and, you know, from a very early age, that really formed my identity. You know, I thought Being for a long- the kid who could draw. Yeah, and just idea. loving making art. Uh-huh. You know, no matter what I was, I was one of those kids who was interested in all kinds of things. Like I would go through phases- you know, like whether it was sharks or hockey or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I always loved like engaging in that interest by drawing it, you know, so I would do tons of drawings of those things. Oh wow! And, um, and I always thought I would be an advertising artist because that's what my mother said you should be. I, I guess that was her way of thinking about making a living. Steady gig. Yeah. But then I went to RISD uh, summer session in 1983, and I majored in illustration, but I realized that what I really wanted to do uh, that, that summer, and I don't know if my memory is that it was because I went to the RISD library and I would look at all of these great books of, you know, Ang, Rubens, Velazquez, all these painters I loved. And I realized that what I really wanted to do was paint, hmm. not be an illustrator or anything okay. like that. And so f- from that point forward, I just knew I wanted to be a painter. What kind of work were you doing at RISD? I was doing figurative, you know, like struggling to figure out how to paint traditional figures. And how, how was that received at RISD at the time? Was that a, a challenge? Um, well, okay. So I, I was doing that like in general, like I was doing that before RISD. I was doing it like in my free time at RISD. I was a total, I was sort of made fun of for being an art nerd. Like I would do my classes all day. Then I'd go back to the dorms and do art. And, uh-huh. you know, some of the students asked, how is, how can you possibly want to do art still? And, um, so I did a lot of the illustration assignments. But your heart, even as a, a young man, was always to be always, a figure painter. Yeah, always. It's awesome. But I also had an uncle in New York um, who lived on 160 West End Avenue. And I would come visit him in the 80s. And he and his partner, way before gay marriage, but they would take me to the Met and they would, and his partner, his name was Keith Adams. He was a fashion designer. Okay. And he used to say to me, um, you know, they both, first of all, thought I was very talented. So they were very encouraging. And I remember bringing my work to them. And these were two men who were extremely critical of everything, hmm. but they looked at my work and were just incredibly positive. So that huh. was a real, um, you know, it was incredibly encouraging. And then Keith, I remember Keith telling me, you know, it's going to be difficult at first, but you keep working at it. You know, you keep trying. And after five years, 10 years, you'll be successful as an artist. Wow. And so I believed that. I mean, maybe I shouldn't have, but I did. Wow. And so I had, I had a certain encouragement that I think a lot of people don't get. That's amazing. Yeah. Did you, um, how did you develop your subject matter over these years from undergrad to um, You mean literally from undergrad? I, I mean, but that's actually <laughs> Wait, a good place to start. I'm just curious, like, what no, were I mean, you? that's a good place to start because actually what I, so when I was an undergrad, again, I was very intent on, you know, learning how to draw like Aang and learning how to paint that way. And um, 
late in, in my undergraduate experience, I realized that I had to somehow make my work mean something. You know, I mean, you know, again, I was thinking about it in those very vague terms, you know, like how to make this tradition that I love be somehow meaningful as a contemporary person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my first thought to do that was to, as I sort of alluded to earlier, to look at people like Francis Bacon, Lucian Freud, mm -hmm. you know, a certain kind of like 20th century psychological figuration. And so that was what strongly influenced my work for a long time. Um, but at a certain point, I realized, and I, I'm repeating myself here because I said this earlier, but I realized that that was just inherited. So I had to figure out how, you know, what would be really meaningful to me and what, as opposed to me just sort of like repeating what other people had done. So I went through this period of just like what I thought was copying, but ending up with these kind of bizarre looking paintings copying from photos or life or what exclusively at that time from life okay so i was doing self-portraits and oh in um, the mirror yeah, yeah yeah from the mirror wow and um so i i wanted to make paintings that where the viewer couldn't um s didn't think that they were able to get into the headspace of the figure in the painting so I started doing these smiling self-portraits. Okay. And um, then I actually did expand that series. And I took photographs of people. So people wouldn't pose for me smiling. Uh -huh. And I did a, a, two paintings of uh, people smiling. And I remember showing them to a friend of mine. And this friend said, um, you know, your paintings look like the J. Crew catalog. <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember the J. Crew catalog. Sure, yeah. yeah. And um, he was right. Like, they really did look like the J. Crew catalog. Huh. Like, all the people in the paintings – you know, affected this kind of um, um, this kind of air of you know as if their style just came about naturally. Do you know what I mean? Like in the J. Crew catalog, uh -huh. and um, there was something about the colors in the paintings that's, that looked like the J. Crew catalog at the time. But even a smile—that's definitely kind of advertising photography, right? Like, right, that was probably a too bizarre about it. So yeah. I, I, I feel like I just saw some of those paintings online because I was Possibly. trying to gather as much information about uh -huh. you as possible. And um, they're so weird. Well, that, <laughs> I, I think the painting that's online, you mean me, the nude self-portrait with yeah. the, the, the flip-flops and the leg warmers? Um, there was that one, but there's just, there there just some smiling portraits and there, and I was trying to figure out what makes them so bizarre. And it's a smile is such a transient thing. The holding uh, it, like if any of you smile right, at me for true. over five seconds right now, it's going to look like this, like rictus, you know? Yeah. Like, and so this person said to me, you know, like in your paintings, there's no artificial hairdos, you know, nobody is, you know, like artificial in quotes. Nobody is um, dressed up in any way where you notice the, the effort they put into dressing. And I, th and I said, my response was, yeah, but wouldn't that be fake for me to do that? But as soon as I said that, I thought, well, wait a minute. Like, is painting just some kind of, you know, like mirroring back, you know, huh. some kind of persona that you supposedly are? So I thought about that and I, I started to like the idea of making paintings where I could like engage in a kind of artifice that wasn't necessarily identified with me, but what does that matter? Huh. And, okay. and then I became interested in that. And that led to these series of paintings that I ended up calling diva fictions, even though they didn't start out that way. So there were a series of paintings of imaginary opera divas. 
Oh, right, and right. In a way, I liked that because I felt like that was a series of paintings of figures that had nothing to do with me, at least on the surface. Hmm. And um, then that led into the Cary Grant paintings. Yeah, the Cary Grant paintings are great. And, and thanks. I still like those. I love um, those. And it should be it should be said uh, for people listening that you were painting a lot of male nudes early on, like with the Cary Grant. Oftentimes yeah. Cary Grant's nude or tan lines, these sort of things. And you, you didn't really paint women till quite recently, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, other than very early. I mean, uh, and then sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't I didn't paint women because I'm only a little younger than like John Curran, Lysia Scavage, uh-huh. Will Cotton may be my age, but you know, just after graduate school, really during graduate school, all of those painters started to become prominent. And I just didn't want, I, you know, I, I felt like in that return to figuration, everybody was painting the female nude. Uh-huh. So I wanted to explore something else. Uh, so you painted those female nudes recently for uh-huh. the show that I, I actually thought were, were lovely. And I guess they must have been your first and, and ages as well. Yeah. And it happened to coincide with this whole kind of like Me Too. Um, I know. Terrible timing. It was terrible timing. So, um, but how, like, um, I, I, I guess like, how did you feel like, like there was a reaction to that that I felt like was completely not what the paintings were about you know like like they were just about how they related to this kind of i don't know what to me feels like a very censored kind of political climate yeah. uh, but but how how did you feel about that uh, about the response to the painting yeah, yeah. Uh, well i mean i guess in a way i th- I, I think it could have been worse, the response to the painting. I mean, I <laughs> did have some positive, positive way responses. <laughs> um, I, I had one very negative review. You know, luckily it was in Forbes.com, so I don't think anyone and, looks and at who, that. And who yeah. reads that? <laughs> um, but, you know, in general, I mean, to be honest with you, my only um, my only real regret about that show is the paintings didn't sell – they did sell to my dealer. Like my dealer bought two of them, which was really nice of her. Um, but they didn't. But you know, you can't always sell to your dealer. <laughs> That's uh-huh. not a good market. <laughs> um, whether or not that was related to the Me Too movement, I really don't know. I mean, I, I think it may have had something to do I mean, with it. I mean, the Forbes review was. So I, I read that a while ago because um, I guess we were having this conversation um, a while ago about political correctness uh-huh. in art. Yeah. And we've been I, interested in it. Uh, but um, um, but it felt like what got me about that review was so little of it was actually about art, and so much of it was about kind of how she feels as a woman yeah. reacting to your paintings. Of, I, I mean, she might as well have been saying like, "Men can't paint women." <laughs> Yeah, I also don't even think she saw the paintings. After talking to her, I mean, it was a, that was a bizarre experience because when I spoke to her on the phone, she was extremely, she was extremely positive and like praised the work and talked about how much she liked the show. Huh. So I don't know if that, I don't know if that like qualifies as some kind of journalistic like lack of ethics. Like, yeah, are you supposed yeah, to yeah. do that? Or are you supposed to say, you know, I thought your show was problematic. Here's why. And then engage with the artist that way. Right. So I guess like, what, what would you, like, if you had a chance to, you know, have a drink with that lady, you know, what would you tell her now? Like, like to you, what were those paintings about? Uh, so I, okay. So I started those paintings in 2010 and I had just finished and no, actually I had just finished the paintings of Barack and Michelle Obama and mm-hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to do. 
And I thought about, you know, I mentioned earlier that for a long time I didn't want to paint the female nude, not for any moral reason at all, but just because Curran, Yaskavage, Will Cotton, Martin Ader, you know, on and on were painting the female nude. That's like mm-hmm. what their work was. Mm-hmm. And so I was interested in, well, there was that. And then I was interested in the male nude because I'm, I've always been interested in painting desire that isn't necessarily the desire of the artist, you know, or making paintings where the viewer questions the relationship between the desire, you know, like the sexuality of the artist. Like I like all of those things to be unclear. Oh, that's and, interesting. I mean, that, but- that certainly motivated me to Cary Grant and the hockey player. So I had placed this prohibition on myself that I wouldn't paint the female nude. And when I was casting around to think of what to paint, I thought, well, prohibitions are bad, right, in general. Uh So maybe it would be interesting to figure out a way to paint the female nude that didn't conform to any of the conventional categories of the female nude. And it sounds like an absurd thing to do because how can you possibly do that after then so many paintings of the female nude? But I didn't, so I didn't want the paintings to be like objects of desire. I didn't want the paintings to be allegorical. Mm. And I, and I also didn't want the paintings to easily read as a subversion of either of those two approaches. And, and in a way, like this may be too reductive. People can argue with me about this, but I think that the female nude, it's been around forever and it's highly polemicized, right? And in general, the paintings of the female nude are paintings of object of desire. There are probably uh-huh. some exceptions to that, or they're paintings that have been done since roughly like the late sixties that are overt attempts to, to subvert that paradigm. Uh-huh. And I didn't, I wanted to see if I could make paintings of the female nude that were neither of those things. But so you could that, almost say a painting of a human is like an object of desire in some way or another, you know, like it's so... I suppose it's inevitable, but I like the idea of like trying to make that not necessarily clear. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's what motivated those paintings. And um, and then it just so happens because of my pace and because of certain personal things in my life that made it hard to paint between 2011 and 2016 it took forever to make those paintings. You know, I'll never forget like realizing that my show called women was scheduled on the day of the women's march. In oh, New York really? City. Oh, wow. Like, so what a disaster. <laughs> You've really got the timing. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but they have, I mean, I think they have nothing to do to do with, you know, what people are referring to, or at least people who interviewed me are referring to as the climate. Um, I, I was just going to say that I really like your work, but what I like about it is that, like, and I always assumed that you'd be a little bit of, like, an odd person. Like, you don't seem to be, fu- like, you're not fighting. Like, the, the paintings are just, like, this is just you. Like, you're not trying to be more contemporary. You're not trying to be more, you know, archaic. You're not, tr- like, it, it almost feels like you're not trying to engage in a dialogue. You just are, like, because this is who you are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... Other than that very general, like, necessity for me that they somehow be contemporary, I don't – that that sort of doesn't help. Do you know what I mean? Like, because it doesn't lead to any solution. You know, that's just something you hope. But then how do you do that? There's no yeah, good like, – like, I feel the, like you're not following a recipe for how to engage in contemporary yeah, art dialogue. A, there isn't a good one. You know what I mean? Like, as soon as you follow <laughs> a recipe right. – you just do something that someone else has done, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
So it does it seem like that the reception it seems like you you've got a pretty reasonable view, pretty thick skin on that. What what does cause you fear as far as being an artist like in the studio in front of your work? Is is that what uh what keeps you up at night in that way? Or was your I don't life? think anything like keeps me up at night. Like, mm. you know, I do wonder. You know, you, it does always. I think probably every artist feels this way that if they've had like decent ideas up till now, that's going to end. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, like what's I get? You know, and I always go through a period of having no idea what I'm going to paint next. Uh huh. So um, yeah, that. But that doesn't keep me up at night. I don't know why. Probably should. <laughs> That's Speaking of, uh, would yeah. you be painting more uh, female nudes in the future by any chance? I, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, just because – I mean, in the future, I, I have no idea. It's possible. Right. But, um, I mean, I, I feel like I'm finished right now with the kind of, like, iconography I've been using. Like, I've been for a long time now since doing the Divas – I've started with like a well-known, like cultural figure. I guess the other way of putting this would be like a cultural construct, like like a diva, right? Like an opera diva, or Cary Grant, uh-huh. or certain hockey players, um, and then the female nude, like this art historical um, icon. Uh-huh. And I wanted to get. I actually want to try doing sort of more fantastic paintings. Mm. Like, oh. fan, you know, with paintings with a fantastical element. Like magical or like... May, maybe. I mean, okay. that's probably outside of the bounds of my capabilities. Like, I don't think I'm a magical thinker. Okay. Like, I would never be able to do convincing Frida Kahlo's or anything like that. Huh. Or Gregory Gillespie's or something like that. But um, but more more like imagined fantastical paintings, just to see what happens with that. So we are always interested in creatives and how they grew up. What I mean, how many siblings you grew up in Boston, correct? Uh-huh. And how was it a big family? Was it a competitive family? What kind of dynamics? I don't were think on? so. I was. Um, it was a competitive. I don't think so. I mean, okay. in what sense? Well, I know, like some like people academically have. Or? Yeah, academically for sure. Like Vince was talking about how. Real intellectual family, and you kind of had to like raise your game around them constantly, sort of thing. And hmm. I'm wondering if it seems like your mom even was there any competition with mom drawing or anything? You know, did it have any? No, I mean there wasn't. I don't remember that it being competitive. I mean, not in the sense of. I mean, I've heard Vince talk about his family, so not in that sense. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess in a way, I had a weird, not. I guess everyone has a weird family, right? But my father was very old. He was born in 1911 in Germany. Okay. So in a way, he was like a product of the 19th century. Okay, he was born in the 20th, but, you know, really like his formative influence were all 19th century influences, right? He was uh-huh. born before World War One, So really, oh, that's I, still you know, the 19th that, century. Oh my God, 1911. That's, yeah. That's yeah. before, like, that's like 15 years before my grandparents were, were born. Like, yeah, he was old. <laughs> and German. First so, car. you know, like a, a German, he what? He would probably remembered the first time he saw an automobile. Well, you know what he says he remembers? And I, for a long time, I didn't believe him. But the more I find out about his life, the more I realize he told the truth. Hmm. But he says that when he was – he grew up in Nuremberg. And he says that when he was around 10, 
he was with a friend and they would, there was this auditorium in Nuremberg and when there weren't people there, they would ride their bikes around the back of the auditorium. And he says he remembers riding his bike around the back of the auditorium and there being a very small crowd, like 15 or 20 people listening to someone who he and realized was Hitler. Oh, wow. So I don't know. Wow. That sounds like it's a, an embellishment of one's history. But I do have to say, a lot of things he told me I thought were lies and they ended up being true. Huh. So it might have been but true. it's plausible. I mean, it's totally it's plausible, plausible. sure, because it was Nuremberg. Right. I mean, it's Nuremberg. It was the right time. Yeah. Like the, and I think there was a while where Hitler didn't have, you know, sure. it wasn't yeah. drawing crowds yeah. of, uh-huh. you know, whatever. <laughs> like he probably he was had- drawing. He was drawing. He was drawing. <laughs> <laughs> Did he? <laughs> um, he had, had, had another tar ranks. Yeah. <laughs> did, uh, did, did you speak German? Did he speak German? In the I house? didn't. He was, uh, I mean, you know, it re- I really regret very deeply that he never taught us German. But he was a weird, maybe like a classic. Um, um, you know, immigrant of a certain period mm. where he, once he got here, you know, Assimilate. Germany was over. Yeah, yeah. You know, like Germany didn't exist for him anymore. So, um, okay. So, 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 so it feels like you're, like you were the product of two kind of unusual people, like the. Yeah, I think uh, that's true. I mean, I never really thought much about that, but, you know, I think my father's weird, you know, archaic, you know, culturally remote, um, presence must have had some influence on me. Hmm. You know, he was a bizarre figure in like suburban Boston in the 1970s. Huh. You know, this kind of old, you know, thickly accented German guy. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was somehow influential. But here, here's another question for you. Kind of like, where do you, um, like, I mean, you say that kind of, sustaining yourself as an artist and your kids presumably sustaining them keeps it keeps you up at night does that kind of but yet you make work where you feel it like it feels like you don't you're just you're you're doing just what you do kind of for yourself like it doesn't feel like you care about the market uh that 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 much at all um kind of where do you see yourself yourself going in the next let's say 10 years (laughs) With my work? Uh, was it, was your work, maybe as a person, just, uh. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I don't, you know, I, it's hard for me to say. I, you know, right now, I'm trying to figure out if this new direction, you know, is anything other than ridiculous. <laughs> that's my first thought about it. Um, but I think, I don't think that's a bad place to be making work out of. You know, like a kind of embarrassment. Do you, do you still get excited? Do you still get excited coming into the studio? Like, um, like when, when you you know you have a blank canvas uh, or die bond or whatever you're that's painting. That's a good on. question. You know, I I love that quote, but I think it was Mary. Um, I'll think of her name, but so someone this person said, "I hate writing, but I love having written." <laughs> and I always feel that way. Like I, I remember inviting Gregory Gillespie to do a talk at the museum school where I was teaching a long time ago. Do you, you guys know who Gregory Gillespie is? I, um, yes. Yeah, and, and and now I'm going to want to hear about Gregory Gillespie. He's one of my favorite painters he, ever. He's a great, I think, underappreciated artist and a tragic story. I think he's one of the like the best artists of the like as far as American artists of the 20th century. He's like 
as good as they got. Yeah. yeah some of his work is terrible, I think. But some of it, I think, is brilliant. I think those 70s and 80s paintings are just great. Um, yeah. Self-portraits. Yeah. And- For him, but- he, he ended up living... I went to school in Western Mass. So um, one of my kind of mentors in undergrad was a good friend of his. And I think might have been the guy that ended up finding him dead. But uh-huh. the, um, What was his name? Trevor Richardson. Oh. Yeah. Should we tell listeners story yeah, of, of um uh, well maybe Kurt, Kurt should because he knew him i just adore well, his work <laughs> i'll i mean i'll tell i'll finish the story about gillespie just as it related to your question about do i get excited about going to the studio i remember inviting him in to the to my class and i remember being like a first year teacher i had this like ridiculous um question that i asked him about like how he related to painting in the 60s and um, and he said, well, I'll get to that in a second. And then just launched on this appreciation for going into the studio every day. And he talked about like how he loved the smell of turpentine huh. and how that kept him going. Huh. And it was so inspiring, both like to me and to other students there that you could just, you know, you really understood how much he loved being in the studio every day. You know, for me, it's a little bit more laborious. You know, when I go uh, to the studio, it's it's a lot of work for me. And it's hard for me to get myself going. I, I mean, I don't know if a lot of artists feel that way. Do you have uh, a ritual? I mean, just in the sense of I go in, I make my coffee. I, like, peel, you know, the dry skin off all the paint. Uh-huh. I get the palette ready. <laughs> I change my mineral spirits. Um, that's my only ritual. And then actually what I usually do is, like, sit in my chair, put my head back against my table and sleep for like 15 minutes. (laughs) It's funny. Yeah. It's a great ritual. (laughs) The, um, the trend now is people all want to know what the high functioning people's rituals are because they think if they do the same thing that they will get the same result, which is complete bullshit. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's really all about just being consistent. Um, I I don't know, but I I totally see how sleeping for 15, I I think I might, I might try that one because by now, like I used to be like Gregory Gillespie. I used to like the, yeah, the smell of turpentine and linseed oil and it just make me so kind of high. And right now I'm thinking like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like now I'm like, all right, uh, need to order diapers. Um, plus, yeah. you know, make sure oh not to run God. out of milk and like to clear your head enough of all of this just mundane bullshit. Uh, I, f- I feel like 15, like a 15 minute nap would, would actually. Yeah. Clear yeah your head. I wonder, that's, that's a good point. I do. I wonder if like that period at the beginning of the studio day of not quite being able to work in a fully engaged way is a way of like processing all that other stuff out of your system. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because uh, yeah. it's yeah. so like it's all that other stuff is so present in my mind. But yep. now I feel like the cell phone's always there, and it's just like that's ringing or text. No, that's and it's why, like, that's why you should keep it like you should keep it quiet on the other side of the room. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, all those distractions. I I had to um, I had to put this program on my computer to keep me off Facebook. Huh? Really? I mean, do you, do you like have a, a do you have adult, a Facebook a addiction? I I have it's just too do I have a Facebook addiction? I'm not sure, but I too often would get like you know, go down that rabbit hole. I mean what I do sometimes is I just like scroll so unbelievably mindlessly. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah, I I put this program on called um I forget, but it has a skull as its icon. 
And so, like, it locks you out. <laughs> Blacked out. Yeah. And it locked, like you said, how long you're going to be locked out. And it's nothing you can do to get around it. Like, I know, you can't but even deinstall it. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, they don't have the same. I was checking if they have the same one for phones. I know. Because the phone, the phone is the real problem. Like, I don't do it with Facebook, but I've done it with Instagram, where, like, like I look at it for a second. And I'm like, oh, that's a really cool painting. And then you know, five minutes later, I'm like down, is, you know? Yeah. yeah. For some reason, I'm, that doesn't happen with me in the phone. I don't know if that's like my age or I just, that the computer. So our, yeah. our, our generation might be more addicted, more, maybe. more phone addicted. Yeah, so like a bit Facebook. of a tangent, but it's been, it's been on my mind a lot lately about, well, it's like that Quillette. I think I talked about it on this podcast before, but that story that just came out of Quillette was like talking about how kids are having, like anxiety and depression is on the rise across uh-huh. the board for kids and their involvement in adult activities like drinking, having sex, going out is plummeting. I know. And it's just like, I want kids to be having more sex and more doing more Absolutely. drugs and drinking more. And it just feels, and I, I keep going back to this word cynicism. I feel like, We've just gotten so cynical because nothing. But but the, but, the, sure. but but like the so for for the record, I'm not sure if kids are getting more more cynical. We might be getting more cynical, but I feel well, like I feel like and not having sex um, actually like. well actually maybe because they're earnest is they're earnest. They haven't been allowed to fail. They're failing. They start failing once they you know whatever go to college and live on their own because we as parents don't let them fail, mm. and that probably includes me. Um and and then like 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 real life. It has to be harsher than this little world that parents try to construct for them. I, I mean, so you're you're a little older, so I feel like you maybe didn't do this to your kids. Uh, but I feel like I'm trying to resist it, but it's so hard to like, you know, didn't do what? Um, uh, overprotect them. Like it's so hard to. Oh, for I think me, I did some of that. It's so hard for me to let my toddler off the leash, you know, off yeah. like the like like every time he's on a scooter by himself, I'm totally freaked out that you know, like he'll get hit by a car. Uh, like I don't trust him enough to keep himself alive, even. <laughs> right. Where when when I was a kid, I mean, we would just leave in the morning, and we wouldn't be back until the evening. And uh-huh. my parents had no idea where we were. And yeah, you know, people think that the suburbs are. People have this perception that the suburbs are somehow safer, but I regularly risked my life. Uh huh. You know, growing yeah, up, yeah. and my kids didn't do that at all. And I do think that I made, in some ways, I made a mistake, like not giving them more freedom. But to that point, what what do you see painting fit in in this yeah. sort of almost apocalyptic scene where where put it, where people aren't engaging with real even enough to to walk out the door and have sex with someone at, at your most hormonal? Where do we see paintings grabbing <laughs> any attention? <laughs> I don't know. I think painting survived all of it, right? So I, uh-huh. I think painting will just keep going. Um, it's and and this isn't the first. I mean, I feel like each generation kind of says that you know, like like, like we've been prophesying the apocalypse for a long time. Um, like you know, I feel like each generation is like you know says that basically this is the last civilized age. It's all falling apart. The empire is declining, and this has been going going on for I don't know hundreds sure. thousands sure. of years. So, but I feel like one of the reasons that we do this is that we can't believe like we're we're 
incapable of imagining a life without ourselves in it. Like we're incapable of it. Like we can imagine, you know, death as being something very painful and horrible, but at least for me, I can't imagine non-existing. So, uh-huh. And I feel like a lot of other people can't either. Like we imagine like a blank space, like, you know, the, but, 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 you know, like, like we are still there. Uh-huh. And I feel like rather than imagining like, you know, like the, we, we will stop existing. We just imagine everything else go, going totally to shit. <laughs> Um, if art will, I, you're, I think you're right. I think art will still be there, like it always well, has been. I also think that painting, you know, I, I guess painting is an alternative to that reality, right? And you, and an I mean, the way of experiencing painting is, um, you know, thank God it's not um, a, just a mirror, you know, reflecting back the culture as it is. You know, I think that's part of its power that it's an alternative. Um, you know, which really. Um, you know, I've always rejected the idea that art somehow has to take up the latest technology in order to be, to be relevant. I mean, I've heard people mm-hmm. say that, mm-hmm. um, where I'd much rather be engaged in something that and offers an alternative. So I actually want to, I feel like we don't have, like, we, we should start wrapping up, but I have one sure. question for you, and the, and it's about Gregory Gillespie. What, what was he like? As, as I mean, you've met him. You've, uh... Uh, Gillespie, was, he was very strange. Um, you know, like in the conventional sense of that word, he was just the, he was a weird guy. I mean, that sounds negative. I don't mean it in a negative way. Um, we don't um, take weird as a negative on, on this <laughs> in, in in this room. Uh, I didn't know Gregory Gillespie that well. I in the late '80s, I loved Gillespie's work, and um, I knew he lived in Belchertown. So I called directory assistance and I said, can I have the number for Gregory Gillespie in Belchertown? Wow. And they gave it to me and I called the number and Gregory Gillespie answered. <laughs> and I told him wow. I loved his work That's and could so I come cool. out to visit? And um, I think I remember him saying he was very busy at that time, but maybe call later. So I called later and we, and we made an appointment. And I remember going out there, that must've been 88 or 89 and I remember going out in the middle of winter. It was early evening, but it was dark. And I remember like crunching across the snow on his old farmhouse to go to his studio. Actually, I, met, I, I, I knocked on his door and his wife answered, who I'd seen like innumerable times in his paintings. It was so weird to see her. Oh, wow. And then she directed me to the studio. And he was a little bit hostile. Um, I don't know if that's the right word. That's maybe a little bit too strong, but I don't know. He's, it seemed like he was in a bad mood or he didn't re- really want me to be there. And I remember him like literally laughing at one of my paintings. <laughs> and, um, and I remember him criticizing the perspective on the wrist. And I thought, what? what? Gregory Gillespie <laughs> is criticizing the perspective on the wrist. <laughs> and, um, and then, and then I guess two or three years later, I just called him again. And this time I went out there and he was incredibly friendly and, you know, he was a, he was a weird guy in the sense that he seemed, you know, he seemed a little bit like a hick. I hope that doesn't sound very offensive, but you know, he had this kind of weird voice. He, he was, um, he, he used a lot of malapropisms, Hmm. you know, like the wrong word for things. Like I remember him calling. I remember him referring to the foliage in his paintings when he meant the foliage. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Um, and, but that second visit, he was extremely nice, extremely encouraging, you know, just a very positive experience. And that was true of the third time I met him too. 
I just can't believe you got to. I mean, he's like one of my my painting yeah. idols. Did you start? Did you start admiring him after he was dead? When did um, he die? Uh, like ninety nine or something? Uh, probably. And I discovered his work and maybe too. Like I started yeah. university in ninety nine, uh-huh. and I was at UMass Amherst, which is so one close of, to Belchertown. I was one town over from. Yeah. I mean, we we lived in Belchertown. My I think my third really? year there. Yeah. Oh, well, it bordered on Amherst. Like uh, I would ride my bike over to school every day. But uh, he lived on Federal Street that I remember. Yeah, um, so there's something that my, my former professor told me that, and, and this guy was, I, I, I don't know, he's maybe a little prone to exaggeration, but it stuck with me. I don't know if it's true or not. But um, so for those of you who don't know, Gregory Gillespie, he was an amazing artist. He hung himself in his studio, which is, I guess, kind of like, you know, full of his paintings. Uh-huh. And my professor claimed that he was just so demoral, at like, like the paintings he was making at the time were you know, he considered failures. And, um, I mean, I guess they probably weren't as good as his stuff from the, from, from the late seventies, eighties, but, um, that, you know, so he, so he hung, he had the paintings kind of all around, um, like, like, you know, just facing him all around a studio and he hung himself in wow, the middle of it. Middle so of the, the, studio. So the yeah. last thing he saw was kind of, you know, as, as he was going with all of these paintings Jesus. that he considered, well, I, I don't even know if the story's true or not. I just still remember it, you know, 15 years down the line. Gillespie had, his family had a history of mental illness. He talked about that. And he, I remember him saying once that he painted as a way of keeping mental illness away. Wow. Like that's how he thought of painting. Wow. And I, I also remember him telling me he would be in there like 10 or 12 hours a day. He also, um, I don't know if you know this, but he owed his gallery something like $400,000. Oh, wow. Like when he first started showing them in the 60s, Bella Fishko put him on a stipend. And that worked out perfectly well for, you know, like 15 years or something. But then sales trailed off and he started running a deficit with the gallery. And I do remember him saying to me that he, oh, I remember the last time I saw him, he said he had this horrible dream where he, his dealer called him and told him it was over. They couldn't keep doing this anymore. Wow. And um, so I think that weighed on him very heavily. Oh, my gosh. So he, ha- he had this painting to, to stave something off. What, what do you paint for? I guess for me, it's just like an on. I think of it always. I paint as a way of like developing on that last painting. And that's mm-hmm. always what I'm thinking of. Mm. And that I just love doing it so much. You know, that gets back to my, um, what I talked about earlier about considering myself a formalist. I was, last fall, we were asked to do short presentations to graduate students at Queens College, where I teach. And as I was thinking about the presentation, I realized that whenever I give an artist talk about my work, I talk a lot about like content and the meaning of the work, but really what motivates me is a love for this form Mm -hmm. and the desire to like work within that form and somehow modify it. Right. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think you need to justify your desire to make paintings beyond that. Like I love Uh, that form and I want to like engage with it. Uh And that's what keeps me painting. You're, you're so content heavy. Do you, do you think that – so the formal aspects like paint, drawing, perspective, all that, do, do you use that as a vehicle to get your content on the canvas or 
your content has something to do with the form, you know, which, which sort of illuminates the other one. Well, I do think that those two things are really hard to separate, but uh-huh. I mean, I really, I, when I say I'm a formalist, I mean that I am always thinking about, again, the form, you know, like the figurative painting, traditional, traditional painting. I'm thinking about that form and then, you know, my love for that form and then my desire to work within that form and to modify it. Mm-hmm. So I think of myself a formalist in that way, not so much in the sense of like an engagement with the formal elements. Mm, so maybe okay. I'm not quite, maybe that's not quite the, quite the right way to use the word formalism, but I think you can use it that way. Sure. Sure. Um, is there a, anything, it's my last question. I don't know if it's Marshall's, but so you, you're teaching also, you know, uh-huh. like, um, is there anything like, and teaching is difficult in a way that like, at least, you know, um, you, you want all of these, you know, you, you want your students to do well and you want them to acquire, you know, certain information about painting and about the world. And some of them do, but some of them don't. And some of them do, but 10 years later, is there anything you kind of wish that, kind of everyone you were you were talking to just knew that would be a base for everything I, you know like like for everything you were teaching them you mean not uh, non-art related non-art like 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 so in my case like when i was teaching i wanted all my students to know how to fail and that it wasn't that bad and i felt like i could never give, really get that across because people felt like you know people took their what they perceived of as failure so seriously and oh. i was like no 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 you have to do you know this is like you have to you have to fail you have to get good at it uh is there something like that like that you wish that kind of like you you wish that they were starting off with that base so you could build on that i mean one thing i certainly wish more of my students had is a certain kind of like visual cultural fluency which most of my students do not have you know a few in a few a few times in my teaching career i've had a a first year student who knew who giotto was or who baltus was but that's very rare Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like most of my students know who Picasso is, who um, Warhol was, who Van Gogh, maybe, maybe Leonardo. Uh, That's about it. You know, I wish they're I wish they were starting with a little bit broader cultural fluency. I used to wish that everyone I not just students but everyone I talked to read this one book called Sometimes a Great Notion by Ken Kesey and I felt like I, I felt like <laughs> I felt like like I could understand people so much better and they would understand me if we just had one book in common. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, my, really bad strategy for making friends. Yeah, really bad. <laughs> a, it's a really obscure book. No, no one's read it. Bad strategy. <laughs> um, but but Marshall, did you have a last part? What do you think is the hardest part about being an artist? Um, well, for me, the hardest part is getting over the fact that I can't paint as well as my heroes. That's the hardest thing for me hmm. because it's so, you know, it's so, th- it threatens to be so constantly demoralizing. Hmm. Thank you so. That's that's a that's a great answer too. Thank you so much for kind of letting us pick your brain. Yeah, it was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. Thank you. This is great. Yeah, actually, so when when you said that you would do this, I was so excited. And I was was like, you you, like like do you know who our next guest is going to be? Um. Yeah, me too. And I'm not blowing smoke. Like I really love your work. Oh, thanks. It's it's something I've looked at a lot and. And actually, if you have time to, you know, we could tack this in somewhere else. I do want to know about, so there's one painting you did of 
guy with a sweater. It could even be a self-portrait. I'm not sure. Self-portrait. No pants. Yeah. I can't believe that made it online. I thought that painting had been banished to the dustbin, which I I love it. You do? See, that's so funny because I, to be honest with you, I hate that painting. Okay. Because I think it's so badly done. And I I actually didn't finish it. I was, I had done a similar self-portrait just before that, which was small. It was uh, 17 by 25. I don't know, remember. I don't know why I remember those exact dimensions. Okay. And then I started that one, and after five months, I was still working on it, and I abandoned it. And then I sold it to this like weird guy collector in LA. And he wasn't a big collector or anything. I thought for sure that painting has disappeared, thank God. Uh-huh. But then I found out it had been purchased by um, a collector named um, DeWoody, is her last name. And um, it made it back online. But I hate that painting. I think it's so horribly painted. But I'm really happy to hear that you like it because it gives me a little bit of hope that these paintings that I hate and dismiss. It it gives you the feel – I don't know if this is the root, but like – Sort of that nightmare where you you're you're somewhere and you realize your pants are off, you know, <laughs> like that really has that. Yeah, nightmare. you know, and the painting before that, I liked. I didn't start the self portrait before that, which is related to that one. I didn't start out with this as a motivation, but I really liked that in that painting. It looked like I had come upon the viewer and was naked, but didn't realize I shouldn't be. Uh-huh. So I kind of liked that. Um, that aspect to it. And I, at that time I was really interested and I, I, I re- remain interested in this to this day, like really trying to maintain an active relationship between the viewer looking at the painting and the figure in the painting. Like I don't want it to just turn into a situation where the viewer feels like they're a kind of protected voyeur. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? I okay. want like a very active relate, an active engagement in the sense that the viewer is aware that they're engaged in an act of looking and that even though this is a painting, there's a sense that they're being looked at too. Yes. And um, so I was – I mean that's part of what I was interested in in those paintings. Your paintings are so like psychologically complex, even if it's just one figure. Like the 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 guy doing the hockey move with no clothes on, kind of like sliding uh-huh. his skates yeah. and stuff. And they they walk such an interesting line that I feel like I'm always trying to find in my work. I used to paint work more similar to that, and lately it's just been a lot of colorful imagery. But it does seem to be the thing that fascinates me in painting is just those little kind of twists that are – Is do you feel like you're constantly on a pursuit to kind of play with people's psychology, the viewer a little bit? Yeah, I suppose so in the sense that I always want to um I want to defy expectations mm-hmm. about like what a certain kind of painting is supposed to deliver. Mhm. So I guess I mean I guess that's a similar thing, right? Yeah, I think that totally answers it. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the stuff I love to look at, the stuff that I mean you had mentioned Bothus and it 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 kind of hits that similar like what's going it on makes in you here. Yeah, a little uncomfortable, uh-huh. a little you you feel a certain confidence in the artist like like you like in a way it sounds weird but you're looking at your paintings you feel almost in safe hands like this guy knows what he's doing. He know you know when you feel like someone 
lucks upon some awkwardness or just sort of happened upon or isn't skillful enough. So everything seems kind of awkward. You know, it's a different experience than intentional psychological playing around with. But I, I know what you mean. At the same time, I do like, I, there are some artists who I think are unintentionally, like content comes, but without them intending it. And sometimes I love those artists. Like I love this, He's not so obscure anymore, I'm sorry to say, I think in part because of the internet, but in the 80s, I discovered this little catalog of a British painter named Meredith Frampton. Do you know who that is? I don't know him. So he's this bizarre, he was just a totally, or at least he thought of himself as a totally conventional, like upstanding traditionalist portrait painter. Mm -hmm. And so he got commissions to do like presidents of universities, and he did um, Prince George, I guess it was. It's one of his least interesting paintings. Um, you know, he would get like a, a famous, a, a reasonably famous composer. I forget his name, but, um, and they, you know, when I, as I've learned more about him, he just thought of himself as a totally straightforward traditionalist. Okay. But those paintings are so bizarre. There's huh. something about them that re- makes them for me genuinely surrealism because, huh. you know, if surrealism is an attempt to get at the unconscious, it, surrealism was an attempt to get at the unconscious, and I think the problem I the problem I have with most surrealism is they developed strategies that were supposed to get you there. Yeah, but yeah. I think that uh-huh. in itself it prevents you from getting there. For sure, yeah. Where Meredith Frampton was just trying to make conventional portraits, and they are the strangest things. Huh. I, I would highly recommend looking him up. I'll him have up. to look him Do you up. Feel that way about the entire, I mean, the entire Northern Renaissance. I don't think they realized how weird they were. Yeah, being. I think that that's oh, true. Like Van yeah. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. yeah, the best. Like, like I don't think they were trying to be idiosyncratic and bizarre and just you know. Like, yeah, almost but, definitely not. But, right. but yeah, yeah. But like to to me, they kind of you know, like in, in a way, they. It's not that they held up better. I mean, like, whatever, the Renaissance holds up well wherever you are. But, it, like, I, I could look at, you know, I could look at a Van Eyck for much longer no, than I, I can look at, like, a lot of other stuff. This could be yeah. divisive for podcasts. I totally agree. I'm a big Northern Renaissance guy. I think it, all Yeah, that. so um, everyone who's uh, who, who prefers Italy should just stop Italy. listening right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I think, I think they were technically better in the north and i do think there was a weird sort of bizarreness crept in with like the cats and the chandeliers and the weird well, way the people co- the compulsiveness and, uh, yeah it's like, amazing yeah. like i feel like in the south they cared more you, you know like they cared more about telling the story uh, uh whereas in the north i don't even know what they cared about. but i i think they were they cared about maybe directly connecting with god by painting every single thread of every single garment uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what the answer is, but no, I yeah, agree. I mean, I do love the Italians, I have to say. I, I, I it's hard not to love it. I mean, of yeah. course. Every, so everyone loves Italians. But generally, I love the weirder Italians, though, like Bronzino or yeah. um, you know, Antonello de Messina. Like those demons like Bronzino is yeah. painting are amazing. Yeah. Um, but who who are your your guys, your artist guys? That you mentioned Aang and yeah, at Aang some point is Bacon. by far my favorite. Um, I love David. Uh-huh. Especially late David. Um, I love Bronzino. I love Holbein. And yeah, Holbein Aang's my favorite, but maybe my favorite painting in the world is Holbein's Ambassadors at the National Gallery. Uh huh. Uh huh. So that is such an incredible so painting. What What is it about that one that that strikes you? So I mean, 
first of all, like being in the presence of that painting, especially the figure on the left, um, is the the realism in that painting is so overwhelming. Like you can, I feel like you can literally forget that you're in the presence of a painting. Wow. You know, that distinction is unclear. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, there are so many beautifully painted passages in that. But then, you know, there's the famous skull in it, right? Yep. And so I'm not that interested. I mean, I don't care that much that it looks like a blob, and then when you go to the corner, it looks like a skull. Uh-huh. Like, that's cool, but that would that's not enough. But what is ama- what that does in the painting is it turns a painting which we all, you know, paintings are a moment frozen in time, right? Almost by definition. Mm -hmm. And this painting is sort of like an exemplary version of that, right? Because it's this incredibly well-crafted, incredibly detailed kind of crystalline image, right? Uh Uh-huh. But there's an, but then, so you spend time in front of that painting really scrutinizing well, first of all, you spend time at a distance from that painting, like looking at the totality of it and the mass of those figures. And then you spend a great deal of time, or at least I do, looking at the painting up close, right? So there's that movement. But then you also like co- constantly go like to the corner, like to see that skull, correct the skull. skull. Right, yes. And so... Yeah, so it looks like a smear when you first yeah. come up to it. But so that, like that process... So there's an aspect of that painting that exists in time, you know, so it like removes it from painting being something that's frozen in time to something that's actually experienced in time in a very sort of palpable physical way. Hmm. And it makes that painting unlike any other painting I've ever I've ever experienced, hmm. you know, because it like breaks down that aspect of painting that we all take for granted, that it's a moment frozen in time, it somehow defies that. Um, oh, and I think in relationship to, like, to the, you know, the crystalline resolution of that painting, it's a very, like, both strange but also really thrilling experience. Uh-huh. Do you, do you, do you seek to make that sort of illusion in your work some – your work where people forget where they sort of are and, and join in with the painting? Like, all I can say is I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Thank you so much, Thank you, Kurt. Yeah, thank this you so much. Great. It was fun. Thank you for listening to the Art Grime Podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Also, we're on Instagram at Art Grime Podcast. You can leave comments on the thread or DM us there. We usually see them. Also, Facebook, we're at Art Grime Podcast. You can uh, leave comments, future questions for our guests and such there. Our website is www.at artgrindpodcast.com definitely go there for the beautiful images that we post of the artist and don't be shy to donate us money so we could buy some really good booze for the guests (laughs) (laughs) thanks everyone bye bye